computer. Welcome back, crazy cat lady. Happy New Year. Somehow we haven't talked uh, uh, in the New Year. It's the 14th. What's that? Oh, we didn't do last week because I was all over the place. Yeah, that makes sense. Makes sense. Well, Happy New Year. Yeah. I mean, I think I told you that in text message, but you know, <laughs> nothing's like. No worries, no worries. Nothing's like, I was about to say in person, but it's not in person, but you know what I mean? It's I guess this is our in person now, you know, like that's. Yeah. Zoom is in person. Um, great. Well, you all are just, you know, hearing us shoot the crap while we uh, set up live on Facebook. Uh, happy New Year to all of you. I do feel like officially, like this is the 14th. This is the last day you can say Happy New Year to someone. I used to think it was the 7th, but I think I'm just changing my own rules at this point. So it's fine. Well, so, and as I told you earlier, I have a friend, he's Serbian by origin. So in the Orthodox calendar, they don't use the Gregorian system. They use the Julian system and, you know, which is, this is exactly why Easter moves every year, right? Or, you know, the Jewish holidays, because, you know, there are different lunar years than the one we use as a secular calendar year. Um, And he says that 2020 actually, per the Julian calendar, ended yesterday so it is completely appropriate to say happy new year today lovely thank you see i feel validated well and you know based on the way that the beginning of the year has been um yeah it seems like 2020 lingered a little bit longer than the gregorian calendar would have, <laughs> would have otherwise indicated uh, everything's fine everything's fine <laughs> <clears throat> excuse me all right we'll probably cut this first part out anyway um on the recorded version. Um, anyway, good morning. Happy New Year. Welcome back to the base. I am your co-host, uh, Fred Curtis from Relentless Love. We have our other co-host, Becca Nyberg, who is a uh, immigration attorney and political strategist. And so I think I have the introductions down pat now. People's titles, everything. Good to go. Becca, how are you? Uh, I'm hanging in there. <laughs> it's It's been a rough couple of, I don't know, weeks, yeah. year, months. I don't know. Yeah. It's rough, but time? you know, hanging, hanging in, hanging in. What, what, what is time? Um, anyway. Um, well, we're just going to go ahead and, and, and dive in. Um, you know, and I do think at, at this point, you know, it's a, most people, if not almost everyone in the country are aware of just the events that have taken place um, in the last week or so. Uh, I think we all sort of had not not everyone, but there was this thought process or, you know, hidden belief that when the calendar changed, not that everything would magically go away. Like, you know, we knew COVID would still be here, but I mean, we we use like new calendar years as these points of, you know, change and time marking and, you know, the old has gone away and the new is here. And I don't know if. 2021 so far has taught me anything more than just like when it's time to do something, just do it. Or when you think you need changes in your life, just do it. Waiting on this arbitrary change of months or years just really doesn't make that much sense Um, because 2021. You know, I agree with you. That's why I don't do New Year's resolutions. I'm like, you know, if there's something I think I need to change, I'm going to go ahead and do it regardless of what the calendar says. But I think it's also a nice reminder, right, to set set these things into motion. You know, I would say it's the same thing as spring cleaning. It's not that you should only be cleaning your house in the spring, but it's a reminder maybe to do a little bit more. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I, mean, I think it's a good it's a good time for reflection. How about that? 
Yeah, that's good. More, more of a, you know, I, I don't know. I think 2021 so far has looked at 2020 and said, hold my beer, but you know, it is only two weeks. So, you know, there's always room um, for improvement. Anyway, on today's show, we're going to uh, talk about last week's attempted overthrow of the government. There's just no other way to put it. Um, those weren't protesters. They were um, mob and rioters attempting to stage a coup on behalf of the president of the United States. Uh, if you think that is opinion and not fact, uh, this is not a, a place for you. Um, so just go ahead and, and close out. But for, for people, uh, for rational people who can recognize that as what it is, um, we hope you'll be a part of the conversation. Uh, so it's Thursday, January 14th, uh, and, and we stand uh, less than a week until Joe Biden takes the oath of office um, as the 46th president of the United States. Um, not only in the midst of everything else going on, uh, the president of the United States, the current one, Donald Trump was impeached for a second time uh, yesterday by the House of Representatives, uh, making him the first president ever to be impeached twice. Um, also, America just yesterday, um, racked up 230,476 cases um, of coronavirus, 3,922 people um, tragically lost their lives yesterday from coronavirus. Arizona was, if you're looking for some, some silver lining here, Arizona was the COVID hotspot capital of the world. Um, they've been overtaken by Ireland. So this one state in the United States is no longer the, the biggest per capita hotspot uh, for COVID. Uh, they're now number two. So if you're looking for some silver lining, um, there is that. Uh, attempted coup of the government, um, public health crisis that is out of control. Um, we got a new president coming in six days, an economy that's teetering on disaster, homelessness crisis. Uh, this is America today. Um, Becca? If you have your coffee yet, how's your tea? How's your morning? How's your day? It's it's warming me up. It's, <laughs> I'm getting ready. That's I'm good. getting ready. Um, in in discussing the the podcast for this morning, I've already told Fred I have a rant, and I yeah. will be ranting this morning. Yeah. Um, because we were specifically going to talk about the events at the Capitol. Um, I don't know if we can call it a coup because I feel like a coup changes the leadership, and this is Attempted. a yeah, but a coup tries to change the leadership and this is a continuation or an attempt to continue. So I'm not sure coup d'etat is really the right term for it. Violent overthrow of the okay, democratic lawyer. process works for me. Okay, lawyer. Um, I, think, <laughs> I think that is, yeah, dang lawyers. Um, you know, I think, I think that works. Um, obviously um, not things that we would want to see with our democracy and everything like that. Um, and I think that, you know, so what was striking me and why I'm about to go on a rant was it's a very homogenous group that showed up at the Capitol. And looking across the, the crowd, it was predominantly two things. It was predominantly white and predominantly male. Um, and I'm going to rant on the whole male part of things, but Fred, I wanted to leave space um, for you if you wanted to rant before I rant um, on on anything related, you know, whether it's the, the racial aspects of it or just anything in general related to what happened um, at it, at the Capitol. Yeah, I mean, uh, just two things. One, if you're if you're you know checking this out either live or later on the Relentless Love page, we've been doing a series of live shows to you know try to. Uh, put out some more publicity on some of the content we're creating. Um, and this is one of our, you know, political shows. We do have some others. Um, I, I think one of the things last week for, for me prior to 
everything on Wednesday and then even in the days after. Um, and this will tie into what happened at the Capitol was sort of the euphoria associated around um, winning both Georgia uh, runoff seats um, for the Senator, now Senator Raphael Warnock and then Senator John Ossoff. Um, um, Ossoff, who I think everybody knows me, who I had the pleasure of working for. Um, and so I think, I think in a way like that, what happened Tuesday and then what happened Wednesday were elite microcosms of who and what America has proven itself to be over time. Um, meaning Democrats won both Senate seats in Georgia um, because of the, the work of Black people and the votes of Black people. Not just them coming out, obviously, but the organizing that they did to organize other communities. Um, you know, Native people, Latinx, Asian Americans, whatever it might be, um, and, and a variety of coalitions, including, you know, white co-conspirators, right? People who get it, people who understand that systemic racism is real, uh, who understand what the Republican Party has turned itself into and said, all right, we're good. We're not going to stand for this. So th there was that sort of jubilation and euphoria. And by Tuesday night, those races were over. So let's make that clear as well. And that's one of the things that continues to bother me about media. I get the desire to want to quote unquote, get it right. Um, but there are, <clears throat> excuse me, there are data people, mathematicians, and like, I'm kind of one of them. I do this for a living, like being able to look at votes and see where they're coming from and see where votes are outstanding. Like people get paid to do that. Um, and both of those races were over Tuesday by midnight and not what not calling those late Tuesday night did one was overshadowed the time and the moment and the celebration that black organizers and black people should have been able to have and other Georgians, right? Just people in general who's, who worked hard, who put years into this. And I do mean years. Um, and, and then by the time, you know, the networks finally wanted to make it quote unquote official, you know, we had people you know, storming the Capitol. I think that's a microcosm of what America is, right? When, when, when non-white supremacists make advancements in society or, you know, are successful or have accomplishments. There is always this backlash or overshadowing of what they had accomplished. Now, I don't think it was intentional, right? They didn't say, oh, it's the day after the Georgia runoffs, we're gonna go storm the Capitol. No, it had to do with the certification of Joe Biden as president of the United States, so on and so forth. I think even that speaks more to what America is, right? It wasn't even intentional that that happened the day after, <laughs> uh, the day after one of the states of the old Confederacy um, turned blue for two Senate seats. Uh, it's a microcosm of sort of what happens both intentionally and unintentionally in this country. Now, tying that back into what we saw um, at the at the Capitol, and I've said this over and over again, and then I'll just shoot it back to you because there's a whole lot more I can unpack here, is that I, my hope is that um, law enforcement across America, special federal authorities, the Biden administration, um, take seriously what happened last week, um, what they are talking about and want to happen in the coming week. And then moving forward, that there is a recognition and understanding of the coming wave of right-wing terror. If federal authorities don't take seriously and commit to rooting this out in the same way we all had to hear how important it was to root out terrorism after 9-11. My fear is that once COVID sort of eases, once we start getting more people out into public places in higher numbers, we've just gone a year. It's going to almost be a year of a pandemic and a very racially charged uh, election and a summer in which we talked about race probably more than we might have in the public conscious in American history. And yet you've had, you know, 
white teenage boys who are already bordering on extremism, probably sitting in their rooms or their basement for 10 months, being radicalized online uh, and being encouraged and stewed by the president of the United States. If you don't think there is a terrifyingly and frightening batch of uh, new right-wing extremists that have been radicalized in the past year and who are going to be ready to act on that radicalization when we go back to some resemblance of normal, you're not living in the real world. And so I think last week signifies a lot of things. That is one of them, is that that could have, and in their eyes should have been worse than it was. And there are dire consequences to be had for America if we don't take the coming wave of right-wing terrorists seriously. And the only way for that coming wave to not actually be what happens is for federal authorities to take it seriously and root it out um, with the utmost resources of uh, American might. And I think that's my, my two cents on that. Yeah, so building on what you said, um, like I said, I'm, this is my rant, my rant episode. Uh, <laughs> and you know, what, what I really wanted to look at is the role of toxic masculinity in this, because I think it is a really, really large role in things. And I'm going to, I'm going to bring it all back. I'm not going to assume a level of knowledge um, of anybody, you know, even in thinking about this and discussing it and determining that this was, you know, something that was really important to me to really point out. I went back and I looked at the definition and I think the best definition I found came from um, the Good Men Project, which says toxic masculinity is a narrow and repressive de description of manhood, designating manhood as defined by violence, sex, status, and aggression. It's the cultural ideal of manliness, where strength is everything, emotions are a weakness, where sex and brutality are yardsticks by which men are measured, where while supposedly feminine traits which can range from emotional vulnerability to simply not being hypersexual are the means by which your status as man can be taken away. So it's really important here to remember that there is a noun and an adjective, right? So we're not saying being masculine is bad. It's the toxic masculinity. It's the very narrow description of what it means to be a man. And I'm not gonna air quote because I think it's pretentious, but there are quotes all through, you know, what I'm saying, masculinity and man, that, you know, these are all in quotes because there's not one definition. I mean, come on, you know, there's not one way to be a man, just like there's no one way to be a woman or to be a person in general. You know, it's, it's a very narrow, very restrictive construct, but we see toxic masculinity coming from the very top you know, obviously the White House. We've seen it through the entire time. The language that was leaked from the, I want to call it the party bus. It wasn't a party bus. Um, the, the, the production bus outside, you know, with Billy Bush, you know, grabbing women by their genitalia. That's an example of toxic masculinity. You don't have to be a man to grab women. Shocking, I know. Uh, but we've seen that permeate through everything that we've seen. We've seen it in things like body language, you know, the way that Melania walks with her husband behind him, head bowed. That's, you know, that's a statement of toxic masculinity. That's a, you know, a statement of the couple's relationship, the power dynamics within that relationship. 
And again, there is nothing to say that one relationship or one dynamic of a relationship is right or wrong. I mean, there are certainly wrong, you know, aspects of relationships, but it's, it's a very clear symbol of toxic masculinity. And it's a very clear symbol, you know, building on what you just said, Fred, about the overall look of the nation about what we're supposed to be. So when we see a group of men with assault rifles, with military training, a lot of them, or law enforcement training, a lot of them, not all of them, um, a lot of wannabe military or law enforcement, because if you look, the people that showed up, even if they didn't have military training, were wearing military gear or military style gear. This is a statement of toxic masculinity. You know, can I say for certain that all of this wouldn't have happened if Kamala Harris wasn't about to become vice president? No. Do I think that was a huge trigger? Absolutely. This woman is taking over? You know, that just goes in the front of everything we've looked at. And a woman who, you know, is not only a woman, but an outspoken woman, somebody who's going to express her opinions is not going to fit into this toxic masculinity where men are always right and women kind of stand back because there's a man in the room. You know, that's that's an affront to what they're looking at and what they're and what you know, what they're building their foundation of their identities on. Because make no mistake, this isn't a choice. It's not like somebody goes out and is like, I'm going to be a person who's going to espouse toxic masculinity. This is ingrained in the personality. And we've seen from the top that instead of working with people to recognize how this is extremely harmful and not productive for a society, it's fostered it. I'm now right in being this, this toxic masculinity and in you know, a very small example, making fun of my friends who cry. I'm now seen as right. And this is the way it's supposed to be. And, you know, this toxic masculinity is on display, looking at what they meant to do in the house, going after Nancy Pelosi, because, you know, I guess there were two targets, Mike Pence for being a traitor and Nancy Pelosi, because she's apparently the devil. I don't know. Um, I would have thought, it would be somebody more imposing, but whatever. Apparently she's the devil. And she's Speaker of the but, House. <laughs> well, yeah, she is Speaker of the House. She is, you know, somebody who has been very vocally against Trump, but there's a lot of other people who've been very vocally against Trump, you know, and, you know, it's coming out today that AOC was also, I guess, had a really close call. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if she was a target, you know, the entire squad, if they were target, or I guess the the previous squad before the new um, the new members were sworn in because I think there's now a male member of the squad. Yeah. But what a representation of all of the things that these people steeped in toxic masculinity are against. These women who are coming in, who are you know trying to take over from the men. What do they know? You know, not to mention these are women of color, which certainly doesn't help this this view because we often see toxic masculinity going hand in hand with racism, although people of color can definitely be steeped in ma- toxic masculinity without having the racist part of it. Oh, for sure. Um, but, you know, when we're, when we're talking about white men, which is predominantly who we were seeing at the Capitol, those two things go absolutely hand in hand. I would bet that, I don't know, name your, your favorite man who's been completely outspoken. Let's say Bernie Sanders, right? I mean, how many times has Bernie Sanders gone out and said things about how what Trump is doing is wrong and evil and, you know, everything like that. I I don't think he was on any sort of like kidnap hit list. You know, 
that list was predominantly women. And I don't think that was by accident. It's because that toxic masculinity has permeated through everything. And it is so incredibly, you know, this is why I'm about, this is why I'm ranting today. It's so incredibly upsetting that after the Me Too movement, after all of this light was shed on what happens to women in the workplace, what happens to women in, in just regular life because of this toxic masculinity culture that you know, we thought we were actually making some sort of strides. And then the very thing we thought we were making strides against walked into the Capitol building and was put on full display. And, you know, just like with racism, you know, it's not something that's going to go away quickly. And I don't think, you know, I'm not disillusioned to that effect. And I don't think anybody else is, but it's such a slap in the face to be like, no, you've not made any sort of, or any sort of grounds. It's going to continue. It's still going to be here. It's still going to be in your face. Um, I, I, I'll stop there. I, I will rant longer, I'm sure later, but I will stop there and, and give you space for response, Fred, or you know, adding on however you, you would like to do so. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I think I can surely, uh, attest to and, and identify, uh, with, with those points. I guess my, my question would be, you know, how do you reconcile that with, uh, women who might've been in the crowd with Congresswoman, you know, Lauren Bobert from Colorado, who, you know, is very much so a Trump supporter, um, with the fact that I think it was 53% of white women voted for Trump in 2016. And uh, well, I think it was 50% this, this go around, um, you know, some, someone who's very much so involved in sort of contemporary modern women's rights, you know, how, how do you reconcile those, those, you know, those truths as well? I mean, it's, it's the same way that we saw a person of color getting arrested as a proud boy, right? <laughs> Just because you don't identify with a particular group doesn't mean that you can't buy into the ideal. Um, looking at, I don't know, Mike Pence's wife and mother, you know, the things that they have said about, you know, oh, he can't go anywhere. You know, my role is this. Um, our newest Supreme Court justice who, you know, very clearly has said, you know, my role is as primary caretaker. My role is, you know, mother above everything else. And this is, you know, this is my role. And, you know, not to say that her husband doesn't do anything, but it's, she's very steeped in, you know, what some people would call a very traditional model of, of what it means to be a woman, you know. But some people, but some women do, do want that. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and they absolutely should be able to do that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm saying you can still support a toxic masculine culture, but, you know, not be male yourself, you know, be something other than male. Yeah. Uh, you know, and part of feminism is women being able to choose, you know, yeah. I can choose, do I want to be a stay at home mom? Do I want to never have children and, you know, go and just work? You know, that's my choice. And that should be my choice. You know, feminism is not being forced to choose one or the other, not being forced to stay in the home when I have no interest in rearing children, you know, things like that. It's, it's all about that choice and that self-determination and not being predetermined you know, toxic masculinity would say something like, oh, men can't be nurses or teachers because of those are traditional <laughs> feminism, yeah. feminist, feminine, feminine professions. Um, you know, so, you know, that's not good for you. Well, why are those, 
you know, typically feminine positions. It's because they're caring for people, they're nurturing, you know, they're taking care of children, which are traditional women's, the women's place. You know, do I think a male teacher is any less male because he's a teacher? No, there's absolutely no, nothing to do with his status as a man. Absolutely nothing. There's no correlation at all. And frankly, I really applaud those male teachers because we need male teachers. We need those role models in the classroom, you know, and to take a position as a society, because we're talking about a societal problem that then trickles down to the individual. When we're talking about as a society, dissuading, you know, men or women from taking a particular path, you know, we're going to lose when we do that. Yeah. You know, let's, we could look at, let's say the Curies back in, was it the 19, early 1900s, where they worked together on scientific stuff, scientific stuff. Obviously I'm not a scientist, right? <laughs> they, they make huge breakthroughs in science and, and helped, right? But it wasn't common for women to be scientists because that wasn't their role and it wasn't yeah. appropriate, you know, again, air quotes, appropriate for them to be in that role. Do we really think that we shouldn't have Madame Curie working on her scientific, you know, breakthroughs? We all benefited as a society. You know, if that's her strength, if that's what, she, and even if it's not her strength, if that's what she's want, she wants to do, why as a society would we be saying no to that? Yeah. It doesn't help anybody. So that's, you know, like I said, it was a, it was a display to me, not only of racism, which I think is getting a lot of coverage as it should, um, because obviously it's an extreme problem and it was, it was on display, but hand in hand with the racism that we saw at the Capitol. And then we also have to look at that misogyny, that toxic masculinity, the specific, you know, and, and it's a continuation of what we see in the media the specific targeting of women for particular political positions, the specific targeting of women for not towing the line of what, you know, the traditional society thinks that women should be, should be doing, should be saying that kind of thing. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I don't disagree. Um, I, I, I do, I, I do think, and I appreciate that much of the conversation has been, um, centered on race for a number of reasons. And I'm going to try to try to walk a very narrow line here. Um, correction, 55% of white women voted for Trump in 2020, up from 53% in 2016. Um, I, I think one, one of the things I always like to tell people is, you know, nothing, nothing new happens. Um, that there's a historical point um, for everything going on in America right now, from, you know, gun rights to the electoral college to, you know, um, uh, racial inequality, so on and so forth. And, and it brings me back to um, a study of women's suffrage and um, what that movement looked like at the tail end of the 19th century going into the early 20th century. And there was a time where, um, you know, women's suffragists and, 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 and Black people thought it was uh, worthwhile to sort of link up their efforts. And, um, you know, we won't go down the entire rabbit hole here, but um, there was eventually a calculation that was made um, to say, hey, I don't know if there's room for, you know, each of us to get what we want here. And so pretty much there was a time where those factions sort of broke off. And so, you know, women ended up getting the right to vote. 
and some other, you know, ancillary advancements. Um, and then we add Jim Crow. Um, I, 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 I say all that to say, I think that there's a, a, a level of, um, there's a level of concern here for me because I've always been an advocate and I am of the belief, and I still am, that America will never live up to its full ideals until it, it makes whole Black people. And, and, I, and I say that for this reason. Um, <clears throat> no other people group in you know, the history of this country has been more oppressed, uh, has been um, more, has been victim of more state sanctioned violence, uh, has been more economically disadvantaged um, than black people. And, and I think what lends itself to that is a calculation by apparently 55% of white women, right? That, <laughs> that white supremacy is in their best interest for whatever reason. I, I'm not, I'm not, you know, researched enough or sociologically advanced enough to to try to make theories on what that calculation is. But for whatever reason, 55 percent of them looked at what happened the last four years, looked at the white supremacist track of the president of the United States, looked at his rhetoric, looked at the option of Joe Biden, who's very much so moderate and said, you know what, sign me up for more white supremacist patriarchal racism. Okay, and so that that's the reason why I think. In the perfect world, we could walk and chew gum. We, we address misogyny and sexism and racism simultaneously, and we should always be working towards a more perfect world and a more perfect union. My, 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 my challenge and my concern there is that we specifically have never dealt with the original sin of this country, which was and continues to be slavery and racism. And I don't think we can accurately deal with anything else any other issues of systemic inequality, any other issues that have to do with any immutable characteristics until we accurately make whole, not just talk about. We don't need any more cuff conversations. We don't need healing. We don't need unity. I've got no interest in healing and I have no interest in unifying with people who don't respect my humanity. We don't need to heal. I don't, I don't, I don't wanna unify with you. I don't wanna know you. I don't wanna talk to you. Um, it's, it's gonna be difficult to do anything until America makes a commitment to be made whole, made whole restitution. It's not just a matter of let's have these conversations, let's have all these corporations do all these performative acts, you know, let's paint Black Lives Matter on a road. Oh, okay, good, way, yay. You know, like what, what does that do? You know, and, and so uh, America has a laundry list of sins. That is the original and largest sin and I don't think there's a way in which we can address any of the other ones until we've made restitution, until we've made that people group whole. I don't know if that makes sense or ties well into, into your argument. It's definitely not meant to be a counter argument or any sort of, you know, dismissal. I just, because and I, I, I'll sort of close, you know, my statement here because I've, what happened last Wednesday was a culmination of November of 2008. People saw, you know, the black guy, saw this black family as president of the United States. And that night Republicans met at a restaurant not too far from the inaugural and said, you know, how are we gonna scheme? How are we gonna, you know, oppose this guy? And literally the, the result was, we're just gonna say no to everything. 
I mean, on 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 January 20th, 2009, they decided that their political strategy was going to be to to not be political. Right. You could say before then America's politics was built on and, and was had this framework of compromise and of making deals and, and, and of coming to the table and having conversations. And that entire party, the entire party never had an interest in any level of compromise or any level of conversation. And so now that they find themselves back in the super minority, they all of a sudden want us to all heal and unify. Yeah, we'd be interested in that if you all showed any kind of commitment to being decent human beings. And so I think that's that's where my argument comes from. And, and I'm interested to hear, right? Like, yes, toxic masculinity is a thing. Uh, it is an epidemic. How do we go about, in a reasonable way, addressing, like, the systemic racism within our politics <laughs> and within our country um, <clears throat> and the toxic masculinity that presents itself because the, the coming wave of right-wing terror, I promise you, none of, none of those people are going to be women. None of them are going to be girls. I don't know of any young women being radicalized uh, by well, Nazis. How about the women, woman who walked through and got shot? I mean, there were, there were women at the Capitol, you know, the, well, yes. the first reported death was the woman, the air force veteran, who walked through the window and got shot. Well, yeah, and that's what that that's that's what I was arguing is that like there were women in the crowd. Um, right. And and well, but that's what I'm saying is there are women being radicalized. There are women being a part, you know, that are a part of all of this. And that doesn't diminish the argument that there's toxic masculinity any more than any sort of minority participating with, you know, Proud Boys or any other organization makes those organizations less racist you know, going back to, you know, the white women voting for Trump, change is hard, man. Change is really hard. If you've hmm. grown up and you're steeped in this culture and, you know, men are the breadwinners and, you know, this, this other party is trying to take away all my rights or, you know, whatever, sorry, obviously not a Republican strategist, whatever the, you know, whatever the argument going out to it is, like, it's hard. It's hard to accept and to look within and to realize that maybe the way that you were brought up or what you've been hearing isn't right or isn't real. You know, I mean, the only thing that we know is real is what we can see, what we can touch, what we can, you know, our senses. Politics isn't real. Politics is perception. So, it's hard to change perception. It's hard to look at it. You know, I mean, we can, you know, look at, let's look at a road rage incident, right? You know, this guy cut me off. He's got it in for me, you know, as opposed to, he just wasn't paying attention. <laughs> you know, it's all about perception. It doesn't make it real. Um, it doesn't, you know, and that's what we're up against. And changing perception is really hard. Making people think that we should have change is really hard. You brought up, you know, getting the right for, right to vote for women, you know, as, as part of your, your earlier statement, bear in mind that those white women pushed out the minority women. Yeah. And oh, they no. said, I mean, that's what I'm, that was this, the cusp of the argument. It's just like, they made the right. calculation. It was worthwhile white women. We need ours. And it's more, it's more political expedient for us to not fight for this on behalf of black women too. So bye, you know, like that was the early right. 20th. And I, could, and I could make an argument that, you know, step-by-step, you know, so if I'm arguing for, you know, women to vote and there's a compromise that's reached, 
that, you know, well, we'll give one group of women the vote. Do I turn that away and ask for everything? I mean, that's, that's a hard question to answer. Do I take the deal and then continue to push, right? Okay, so you gave it to this group. How about this other group too? You know, let's take it, you know, out of, out of race, you know. So I want, let's say I want the voting age to lower to 16 from 18. And somebody says, well, we'll lower it to 17. Do I say no? Or do I say, okay, sure. And we'll modify it again. You know, we'll move incrementally, you know, because politics moves incrementally. I mean, it becomes extremely difficult to be like, yeah, I'll forget the, the minority women and all of this. Like, that's not a good look. That's not a good place to be. But it, it's hard to turn down. You know, when you've been working for something and you can get to 50% of your goal, do you not take the 50% and wait for the whole 100%? And to some extent, I would say that's part of the problem that Democrats have had in putting legislation forth and moving forward is because they want the whole 100%. And then, and I'm not saying the people in Congress because they do take deals and then they get absolutely railed by people outside of politics for not getting to the hundred percent. So, you know, I mean, I think it's, it's a very difficult issue. And again, you know, toxic masculinity is tied into racism, very clearly tied. You know, I don't know that I even would see one without the other necessarily, especially, um, especially looking at, you know, a, a group of white people as opposed to, you know, a group of minorities that were in toxic masculinity. I, mean, I don't know that I've ever met anybody, any white man steeped in toxic masculinity that wasn't also racist, you know, and, and small, small sample size, because it's just the people I've met, you know, maybe those yeah. people exist, but, you know, it's just, it's a perception. It's really hard to counter. And, you know, I've seen some arguments that, oh yeah, they're going to die out. You know, the, no, the old racist white men, you know, now they're 60, they're 70, you no, know, this, this racism will die out. That's not no. how this works. <laughs> no. Not how any of this works. <laughs> no, their sons, their grandsons were at the Capitol chasing the, 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 what we can call a hero, I guess, um, security guard, black man chasing this black man through the halls. You know, I used to uh, I used to believe that, too, when I was a much younger person. And then as I got older and got involved in politics and started working this and traveling the country and getting to know people, what I want everyone to understand is that, you know, these aren't people you unify with. They aren't people you heal with. They aren't people you come to the table and have conversations with. Um, you find their institutions and you try to gut them out from the core and, and crush their head. And the reason I say that is because um, while, while, while we have been thinking these people are going to die out for the better part of decades, they've been teaching their children um, that we are literal agents of Satan, um, that, you know, Democratic leaders, Barack Obama, Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden um, are Satan incarnate. Um, that we're all going to hell and they've been sending them away to schools to study and read the Bible intently um, and to be able to have the spiritual might uh, to uh, be able to drive out the roots of Satan, which are us in our ideology. And so the idea that these people can be reasoned with um, is just, it's just fallacy. It's pretty naive and, and it's relatively uh, obtuse. And so, yeah, I mean, you're right. They're, these these people aren't going anywhere because human beings have this nasty habit of procreating. 
And then once they do the procreation, they have this nasty habit of passing down um, their um, hyper insensitive, selfishly homicidal views to their offspring. And so what that, that's the easy way out, right? Like thinking people who are racist are just going to die. Like that's the easy way out because it absolves you of the work that's necessary in order to make this place um, somewhat better. Any final thoughts? No. Um, <laughs> you know, I think I've said this before. I hate coming to the table with a problem without a solution. And I just, I'm, I, I don't see the solution here. Um, you know, take, you know, your solution was kind of getting into these organizations, rooting them out, you know, destroying them from within. If that would have worked, we wouldn't have the Ku Klux Klan anymore. Um, you know, and, and maybe the argument is we just didn't do a really good job trying to do that. But I mean, I don't know of any group more stigmatized, maybe Nazis, Nazis might be more stigmatized. But I mean, the Ku Klux Klan is pretty stigmatized and yet they still have members. They still have people joining up. So, yeah. I mean, I think I'm thinking less, less those friends groups that we um, publicly have disdain for and, and more so the groups that, you know, like Dr. King said, the white moderates who put stamp of approvals on. The FBI came out with the report, I think it was six years ago now. I mean, this was a long time that said white supremacists had infiltrated um, local law enforcement across the country and the military. I mean, this was a really long time ago that they did an extensive study and told you just how many and how intense, not, not just that people who had white supremacist views or right-wing ideology had ended up as police officers and military people, that systemically they had organized and trained and recruited to place white supremacists within local law enforcement and military. That was years ago. And so, like, for example, I think what has to happen, like if I'm Joe Biden on January 21, I am terminating every single Capitol Police person. Secret Service will take over the responsibility of, you know, protecting U.S. House of Representatives and all those people. Do you think Secret Service is any better? I think they're better. They're a little bit better than Capitol Police. Yes, I think it's I think it's margin. And but that's the thing, right? It, it can't be like, oh, they're just as bad. So we're just going to keep one institution. You know, I, I think that's what we get into the habit of. It's just like clearly we saw Capitol Police who were um, who were complicit in assisting the mobsters. And so if I'm president of the United States, all of you are terminated. You're permitted to reapply. You're going to have a much vigorous uh, a much more stringent, you know, uh, vetting process. And then we'll see if you should actually have this job again. But they can't be trusted to protect uh, elected officials. You can't trust your local law enforcement that they're just not out hunting for game if they see women or people of color. Like we have the the most, the, the institute. Well, so that, I mean, so that's my problem. I don't know that you can pick one law enforcement organization out and say that it is any less steeped in toxic masculinity or racist than any other. I think you can. Because I would take the, the Secret Service if I to pick anything else. Right. Well, but that's the thing is, like, I've known Secret Service people. Um, having lived in the DMV, I actually, my dog was best friends with their dog. Like, they had playdates all the time. Great guy. But there's a reason he's in the Secret Service. And it goes to the, and maybe this needs to be another one. And this is certainly not meant as a law enforcement bash. I have plenty of friends who are wonderful, wonderful police officers. Um, and, you know, this is not an yeah, everybody yeah. thing. Yeah, Just yeah. like not, you know, 
you know, I'm an attorney, you're an attorney, not every attorney is bad, not every attorney is good, right? But there is a culture within law enforcement of toxic masculinity and of racism, including and including people of color who go into yes. law enforcement being racist against other people of color. Oh yeah. So how can we say Capitol Police is any worse than any of the others? Because the people drawn to law enforcement fundamentally have at least something in them that says, I want to be able to control people. I've seen Capitol Police take selfies with people as they marched in and mobbed it. I mean, I, you know, I like to me, that's a, like you're not going to find me advocating for any law enforcement group as not having white supremacist roots and tendencies. The police, the history of police in this country literally comes from slave catching. Like they were created to uphold white supremacy. That is not an opinion either. So, so you're not going to find me saying that none of these institutions have those roots. But I'm saying is at some point there, there has to be a, a commitment and a beginning to an attempt to not just uproot these things because you're not going to uproot white supremacy. You're not going to get rid of every single white supremacist law enforcement person. Just like you're not going to get rid of every single white supremacist real estate agent or lawyer or doctor or politician, so on and so forth. But when you have something that was so glaring, uh, we have video. When you have something that was that so was so- So why not go after those ones on video? Those ones that have been shown to have supported as opposed to re-victimizing some of those Capitol Police officers who were victimized. It doesn't make enough you know, of a statement. It, but you're hurting individuals in, in, you know, you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater here. You know, you have certain individuals within the Capitol Police Department who undertook heroic <clears throat> action. They did. Who they led did. protesters away from the Absolutely. chambers. Eugene Good, who faced, who faced death. Yes. Who got beaten by pipes. Yes. You're telling me now they lose their jobs and they have to reapply with this really strict vetting process? Like, Yes, and they will be one of the first people rehired. That still puts them under a lot of pressure and there's a lot of other employment concerns. What if they're laying in the hospital because they got their head bashed in with a lead pipe and you're now going to fire them, which means they lose their health insurance for their hospital stay and maybe they can't get rehired because they now are disabled and you're putting their disability at impact. Like, Baby with that bathwater. No, I mean there there are ways we can within government you can get creative to make sure that they keep their health care, that their disability and pension kicks in. I mean, I just I I'm at the point now where, you know, I I'm I'm not we we can't afford to keep limiting the imagination of the American excellence. Like we've, you know, that just because we don't quite know how or the steps to accomplish something now doesn't mean it can't be accomplished. And I, well, what about taking away the law enforcement immunity and yeah, being able to criminally prosecute instead? Wouldn't I, that be a better way of like, no, you're really going to get punished. Totally you're not just going to lose your job, you're going to jail. Totally should get rid of qualified immunity. Additionally. But, you know, I mean, I, 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 I yeah, I, I understand. Like for every single, for every single piece of progress, I mean, you can, you can, you, what happens if we institute universal health care and somebody loses their private insurance that covers that, you know, I mean, like for every single 
step of advancement, there are very legitimate stories of, uh, that would counter the positive of that. And I, I totally get that, you know, that would be incredibly inconvenient to some individuals. Um, and I, that's just kind of life. I mean, I, I do, at what point do we put aside the, the needs and, and wants of a small faction at the expense of the American people as a whole? Like, I think that's what our politics has been for four or five decades. And um, I think it's high time for that to change a little bit, but it's just me. Noel, so instead of, you know, throwing out baby with bathwater, what about a vetting? You know, if you participated at all, uh-uh. you know, in this, you're out, um, you're fired, you're going to get criminally charged. And now we have somebody else doing the hiring to make sure that the people coming in don't don't have the same issues. You know, I mean, it's it's very telling. I mean, look who look who's now head of the, the Capitol Police Department. It's no longer a white man. You know, so can we put some faith in her to root out corruption, to root out the issues, to really take a stand? And frankly, I think there's it's a lot to put on some a minority shoulders, which is really kind of unfair. Um, you know, I hope that she is the right person for the job. And I don't, and I mean that only because she now faces additional scrutiny of, you know, is she overly favoring people of color? You know, is she overly favoring one group or another because she is in that, you know, that minority group, which is just, it's a terrible thing, you know, to put that on her. But is she the right person? Is she willing to do that? Is she willing to take the death threats because they will come if they haven't started, they will come against her. Is she able to stay protected against those credible death threats? Because there will be attempts on her, whether it's an overt attempt on her life or just a sabotage within the department, it'll come. It, I mean, it would have come if it was a white man that was taking over. It's gonna come double or triple or quadruple because yeah. she is not a white man. <clears throat> yeah. Um... I think you sign up for that <laughs> when you take those positions. I mean, I mean, look, you know, I, I know I might sound callous here or whatever the word is. And, and honestly, I don't mind that. I mean, if I go out here and I'm in the car with my cousins and my, and my friend and we stop by the gas station and he stops by the house and he goes inside and, you know, he, he robs the place and accidentally kills somebody and then comes back in the car or we drive away. DA doesn't care that I was just in the car. And so I, I, I think I'm fed up with, the American public having more responsibility and culpability than the people who have sworn an oath to serve and protect. I mean, there is very much so a distinct culture of, uh, of protection within each and every law enforcement agency. And I get it. I understand why, right? If you don't look out for your, for your brother or your sister, when you need backup someone time, when you're facing a very real and, and violent situation, somebody might not show up. So I get it. I get, I get why they feel like they have to do that. I just don't think in lieu of that, there can be a whole lot of separation between good and bad. At some point you're, 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 you're either part of an institution or you're not. And you sign up to bear some of the consequences of the other people within your institution. And I think, and I think to a person and correct me if I'm wrong, even the good law enforcement people that we know, and again, like we all know good 
cops, right? But I think even that's a thing. It's just like, <clears throat> I'm tired of every, like whenever we criticize law enforcement, people have this unction to say, oh, well, not all cops, not all cops are bad. Not all, and like, yeah, I get that. But like, you know, if, if Delta Air, I think Chris Rock made this thing a while ago. Like, if Delta Airlines had 20 crashes a year, right? They, they wouldn't send a, a PR person on CNN or MSNBC and say, well, most of our pilots are good. It's like, no, bro, like 19 planes, 19, 20 planes are crashing a year. Like, yeah, your pilots are, you, they, most of them might be good, but you know, like that wouldn't be an excuse. And I think even that is part of the white supremacist in aspect that's ingrained in all of us. Like before I make, before I criticize this institution with very valid criticism, and we have centuries of evidence we have contemporary evidence, not just convictions, but if you go look at the amount of money that law, that law, um, that police officers or police, you know, departments rather are paying out because of wrongful, like we have the evidence that says it's more than just a few bad apples, right? Why do we continue? It's literally all of us. Why do we continue to feel like we have to preface any sort of critique of this institution with, well, let me just say not everyone. At a certain point, and this is what people always forget, right? A few bad apples. Well, you cannot conveniently forget the last part of that line. Spoils the bunch. And it's just high time we recognize the bunch is spoiled. Yeah, so, I mean, I have two things to respond to that. Um, number one, I don't think that there are, I, I don't think that it is appropriate to send minorities in to clean up the problem for minorities. So that was my point about a black woman being at the helm of the Capitol Police right now. She's not, she shouldn't be our saving grace, right? It should be on people who are not a part of affected groups to clean up because we're putting more pressure, more danger on people who are already facing pressure and already facing danger by the color of their skin, by being non-male, whatever it is. It's not right to have those people face that additional pressure. And it's not a matter of like, oh, I don't think she should be in leadership. No, that's fine. Absolutely, let her lead, like let's promote women, let's promote minorities. You know, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying when you are put into a high profile position where there are death threats coming, maybe we should think about, is this the right thing to do to send in the minority to, to be killed? You know, it's like putting minorities on the front lines of a war. You know, the infantry, when we used to send in the, you know, the African-American, you know, regiments because they get mowed yeah. down first. That's what we did. Right, but that's not right. You know, there's not nothing to say is. that, you know, <laughs> that those regiments were any less trained or any less qualified than the regiments behind them. We're providing a smoke screen. This is not a black person. This is not a, a, a woman problem to clean up. This is a white person problem to clean up. It's a man problem to clean up, especially if we're talking about in law enforcement. And, you know, I have, I have a friend who I won't name him because I don't think he wants me to name him, but he works for um, internal affairs with the DC police and he's going after these people. And, you know, again, 
it shouldn't all fall on his shoulders either. You know, if there are minorities or women who want to take this job, they absolutely should be able to do that. But he is a white man, you know, he's the one that should go in there because they'll joke about how, you know, he's persona non grata in these spaces, but he's not getting death threats or at least not to the extent or not the credible death threats that people of color walking into that same position is. So when we're, so, you know, let's put, you know, people in leadership that are minorities, especially in law enforcement to help, you know, to help foster the right culture and everything. But when we're talking about putting people in charge of cleaning up white supremacy and cleaning up misogyny, putting people in the marginalized groups, I'm not sure that helps, you know, personally, but also as a whole, you know, if we're saying, oh, that's just the black woman's perspective, that doesn't really affect me as the white guy. And that's what will be said. She doesn't get it. This is how this is how the police is run. She can't get on board. She needs to leave because she's not one of us. And again, not saying that's right. You know, that's racist. It's misogynistic. It's, you know, it's awful. But at the same time, if we want to move forward, we can't just rely on women and minorities coming in to clean up the mess, coming in and giving the example. It has to be the white guys. It has to be the white women, you know, providing that example as well. And it has to be a vocal example. It can't just be a, you know, oh, I haven't said anything bad about her. No, vocal, enthusiastic support of minorities, of women, of, you know, people who don't look like you um, in marginalized groups getting control, getting power, getting promotions. You know, I can be sad for myself because I want it, but be really happy that somebody else got the position at the same time without making snide comments about, oh, they only got it because they are whatever. You know, they slept with the boss. They, you know, were looking for affirmative action. Whatever those snide, racist, misogynistic, terrible comments are, I can be happy for somebody else. And while still being, you know, upset that I didn't get it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm with you. I just, uh, I mean, I, I guess I don't, maybe this is me jaded as a, as a, as a black person. I just, I, I don't, I don't have expectations um, for, uh, you know, someone who doesn't identify with the struggle to come do the right thing. You know, if they pop up or if they come join the march, that's excellent. And I mean, that's one of the things I think it's intentionally washed out of like the civil rights movement and abolition, for example. Like there were tons of white co-conspirators in the civil rights movement. You can go look at any photo of a march led by any civil rights icon. I mean, the most notable one is Martin Luther King, but there are tons of white people in there. And there are tons of white people down in Mississippi for Freedom Summer. I think I think that's been intentionally washed out of the history books because then it 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 creates this illusion that there's always this this versus us or that there's not a coalition of oppressed people and people from the traditionally oppressed um, oppressor group who agree and who can build a consensus and a bandwidth. I think we've seen that to an extent to an extent with this past election. I think the problem is like. You know, as a black person, it's like, okay, cool. You know, we gave you two Senate seats. We, 
gave you the house and we gave you the White House. Now show me. And so it's like, you know, once again, in, in, in a nation that has proven time and time again for centuries to not value us as human beings um, and to a party who has uh, not prioritized uh, us as a constituency uh, in policy or in appointments, um, we showed up for you again. What are you going to give us in return? And yeah, I, I, for one, don't have tremendously high expectations, but I think that kind of ties back into it. It's just like, okay, we, we, keep, we keep being here. We keep saving you. Somehow we still believe in this democracy, this thing called democracy. Um, are we ever going to get that check cash that we keep writing for you? I don't know. We'll see. Well, um, that's, well I'd also, sorry, I know that, you know, we're way over our usual time at this point. Um, but at the same time, I think it's great that we are extolling black leaders when we talk about civil rights movement, because what would be worse than taking the white people out altogether is putting them in front saying, you know, oh, it wasn't Dr. King. It was, you know, Mr. Smith that that really made the difference here. Taking that victory away from the people working, you know, going back to the suffragette movement, right? Instead of saying, you know, oh, you know, it was the, it was the victory of the suffragettes saying, oh yeah, their husbands did great, didn't they? You know, they really, you know, they really talked to their politicians and they made sure these, you know, these poor little women's issues, you know, raised to the forefront. You know, you can't erase the people that are affected and have worked so hard, frankly. <clears throat> and, you know, if it had been Dr. King and Mr. Smith walking together and they all, both gave their speeches together, okay, fine, whatever. But this wasn't a movement led by white people. It was a movement supported by white people. And I think that's also incredibly important. You can't lead <laughs> for a group you're not a part of. You go and you support. And sometimes maybe that means making a speech, right? So I've, I've done this in um, domestic abuse parts. You know, I have a, a client or somebody I know that has experienced domestic abuse. And I have said to them, I think your story is really powerful. Would you be willing to share it? And they're like, no, 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 no. Would you be willing to let me share it for you? Yes. Don't use my name. Don't put my face out there, but you can use my story. That's letting the person affected lead, letting them make the choice. Letting, you know, and in, in this case, it was, it was dangerous, literally dangerous for, you know, my survivor to, to put her face out there, to put her name out there. You know, we have to, as members of the non-marginalized group, support the marginalized group. What, so men supporting women, right? White people supporting black people, however you want to, you know, look at it. Um, we have to support and we have to lead in a way that the people most affected want. That's our show for this week. Thanks for joining us. Um, hey, I got a new book out. It's called I'm Not Okay. Thanks for asking. It's a poetry book. Um, as we live more and more, I'm like, man, this is really good because it really speaks to the times. Um, I've finally given myself permission to say I'm a good writer. It's a really good book. You should buy it. 
www.relentless.love/releases. Um, we've also got a lot of new merch out. We'll be back with uh, um, another show. So just live live shows this past week and this week. Um, going back to the original podcast, uh, Spotify, Apple, Google. Um, every Friday morning, you can check those out. Uh, Becca, hope you have a good week. Thanks for joining us.